1: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime
2: Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in.
1: All right, Sarah, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Frank Holland in for the Judge Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, what's next for your money following a really wild week on Wall Street? Joining me for the hour to discuss is Rob and He's joining us remotely, right here at the New York Stock Exchange. Brenda Vingello, Joe Terranova, and Steve Weiss. Before we get this debate started, let's check the markets. Right now, we're seeing red across the board. The Dow down about one and a quarter percent. The S&P down just about the same. The Nasdaq Composite down just one percent. Still on pace for a four percent gain this week. Uh, the ten-year note at 3.406, about 50 basis points lower than it opened just last Friday. Of course. We know all the issues in the financial sector we've had since then. And today we're looking at the banks. They are lower across the board again today. We're looking at the KRE and the XLF. Both of them are lower, capping off a really chaotic week for the financials. The focus now turns to the next week as we gear up for an increasingly critical Fed decision on Wednesday. So given today's pullback, how should investors be positioned heading into next week? Let's get this conversation started. Joe, I'm going to turn over to you first. We're seeing the pullback today. Um, we're going to get to some data about inflows into cash, out of equities. But in general, what are you seeing? What are you thinking?
2: Well, it's a disinflation formation again today. So you have a two-year back below 4%. Commodities, once again, are leading on the downside. It's the Russell of the three major indexes where you're seeing uh, the most loss of value. The Nasdaq's trying to find a degree of support. It's one of the, the better indexes on the day. So you, you, you still have, you have not been able to wash away this disinflationary element as a result of SVB and the events of last week. Um, Clearly, it has cracked confidence. That is without question. We've seen this week the consensus capitulation where the reality is nobody's making money this year. You know, the, the, the formation was long physical commodities, short bonds, Long financials, long energy, long healthcare. None of that is working. Underweight towards mega caps and technology itself. Um, It's a very difficult environment. Frank, I think ultimately what that leads to is less liquidity in the market. Because the tendency now for those that are losing money is to pull back and not participate until you get further clarity. Now you combine less liquidity with a higher volatility environment and a triple-witching Friday, and that makes for an ugly-looking tape.
1: Joe, it sounds like you've been talking to Steve Weiss. He's been saying a lot of similar things. Steve, what are you seeing today? I mean, we're seeing the Nasdaq, the best performer, quote-unquote, down 1%. You
3: know... At some point, there's some debate, but look, you're wearing a blue suit. There's no debate to that, right? That's what we can debate, whether it's tight around the middle or not. You know, that's a legit debate, <laughs> but we can't debate the color. So my point is the following. You can't debate the market's going down. We're at the tip of the spear, as I said the other day, on what the Fed tightening policy is doing. This is just the first indication. In order to buy the market here or buy stocks in the market, you have to believe that this is the final event. But it's not. It's just the beginning of what you're going to see in an economy that's continuing to decline. So why would you buy stocks? If the economy is declining, earnings are declining, that means valuations too high. And the move into tech, that's a temporary move. So there are people that have to be in the market. Some of them are on the show. They've got to be in the market. They're not the asset allocators. It's not their fault. So they're looking for the best place to go, the most defensive place to go. And maybe that's big tech, because you don't have balance sheet concerns. You don't have lending concerns in terms of rates. So, but you will have growth concerns. So the phenomena we're seeing now, we'll get to what we talked about FedEx, is if you cut heads, that's great. Your stock's going up. So even though you're missing a revenue line, even though you're missing an earnings line, you cut heads, well, then you're going up. Guess what? You can't cut to zero because the growth slows. So I would not be buying anything in the market at all. Just go to cash. There's some days to play, some days to preserve capital, preserve capital.
1: You know, Steve Weiss, you're not the only person thinking that. Also, I'm going to hit the abs harder in the gym. I feel like that was like a shot. I don't even know. Uh, Brenda. <laughs> <laughs> the show still has 56 minutes. Yeah, Keep we got to get start started early. Like I, I know you like the report, 10, so so I I I to repartir. Seriously, when I get out of here, real. right to LA Fitness. <laughs> anyway, Brenda, um, what are you looking at right now? Obviously, you have a lot of exposure what's going on in the West Coast and the banks and Silicon Valley. Um, where are, you, are, are there any places you can look for opportunity?
0: Sure. I mean, I think we're still we're in a stock picker's market. Maybe not today, <laughs> but I still think there are opportunities out there. And I think for cli- for you know people that want to have some diversification, having some bonds in your portfolio doesn't hurt either. You know, that's an area that we added a little bit to, um, right at the end of last year at the expense of large cap equity. So I think that there is still a decent risk reward on the bond side. Um, but I think there are still opportunities in the stock market, and particularly I think we need to wait and see what happens next week. Um, If the Fed pauses, even if it's temporarily, I think that could, um, you know, cause money to flow back onto the equity side. Uh, But I do think the recent events of the past couple of weeks are effectively doing the Fed's job for it. I do think that the economy is likely to slow as a result if not for less lending, but also just, especially in my area where I live in Silicon Valley, I think just when you look at consumer confidence and what's happened with the recent events, there's reason to believe that we may see a pullback in consumption as a result.
1: Yeah, understandably, a lot of loss of confidence out there in the Bay Area. You know, you guys are all kind of touching on the idea of inflows. I wanna to go to uh, Michael Hartnett of B of A, um, their flow show data right now. I think we have a full screen for it as well. $113 billion inflow into cash just this week biggest influence of cash since April of 20. We all know what that was, the beginning of the pandemic. Joe, what does that say to you about the confidence that investors have right now? I mean, obviously it's a lack of confidence, but in general, what does that say to you?
2: So I'll I'll turn quickly to Steven and say, Steve, close your ears on this, you're not gonna like it. Uh, From the perspective of a long-term investor, remember your reinvestment risk. Always remember your reinvestment risk. So if you're going into cash, okay, think about the move that you've had in a two-year treasury from one week ago Wednesday at 5.08 to below 4% and how quickly that happened. If you made that move into cash at that point, you're not feeling very good in those cash, cash yielding equivalents. So the reinvestment risk always comes with the tremendous difficulty of timing back into the market. And unless you could think that you could play the course like a professional golfer, there are some people that can do that and market time. their are way back into the market from cash. Congratulations. That's awesome. But most people can't play the golf course the way a professional golfer can. And the market timing is nearly impossible. So from an asset allocation perspective, that cash element to me is only going to prove detrimental.
1: All right, Steve Weiss, back to your point about going into cash. I mean, it looks like we're on course right now to have the biggest inflow into cash this year since Q2 of 20. Again, that was the pandemic. Obviously, a lot of panic and fear then. It depends what you do with it.
3: So I've been, you know, my final trade consistently has been two-year treasuries. So they've actually worked out. It's not that I'm not losing money this year. If you have any equity positions, chances are you lose losing money. So I am, but not a lot, but I'm making money in my bond portfolio. It's not a substitute. Today I was looking at, and I agree, you can't, you can't catch bottoms, you can't catch tops. But it's a question of how much time I have to put money in the market. I think I had six to nine months. But I was looking at bank preferreds today. City's not going out of business. Their preferreds are going to be money good, right? So maybe you pick up a 7% yield in there. That's where you should be. You shouldn't be in pure cash, right? right? Given where inflation is, I mean, that's a declining asset. Cash is always a declining asset, right? So I think you can find places to go. Uh, Some things, I actually looked at Key Corp, right? And I said, that's a little risky. Monstrous yield, you know, five times earnings. But is that five times accurate or is it 10 times? You know, I don't think they're insolvent, but uh, so they're a place you can go where there's not a lot of risk. And I think bank right. prefers are one place.
1: I think to your point, Steve, uh, we're seeing the biggest inflow into Treasury since May of twenty twenty two. Rob Sechin, we did not forget about you. I know you're out there as much as we'd like to, Frank. We have. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the consensus opinion, Rob Seachin, not at all. What's your take? I, so I know many that's investors is a
4: token Steve Weiss opinion, Frank. I know that. <laughs>
1: He speaks for himself. We could
4: vote on it, Rob.
1: <laughs> um, Rob, huge inflows into cash this week, biggest since the, the basically the beginning of the pandemic. What does that say to you?
4: Well, it says that there's a lot of risk aversion out there, and it should be no surprise. Anytime the Fed in one year, 12 months, goes from 0% interest rates to 5% interest rates, It's going to expose some folks and I think we started to see the beginnings of that exposure last week with the failure of of SVB and it puts the Fed in an interesting position in that they they're they're in a catch 22 of fighting inflation or supporting market stability and I think. You know, the bond market is saying, is the Fed going to pivot more broadly in support markets the way they did in 1998 after long-term capital management, the way they did in 2016 uh, with the oil and uh, gas banking crisis, and the way they did in 2018 with the short-term funding markets? Risk is that if they do that, they cause inflation to become more entrenched. Let's remember, the last times they did that, we had an environment where the feds uh the the inflation target was below 2% or inflation was below the feds target of 2% and the fed is acutely aware of what happened the last two times in 98 where they cut and it reaccelerated inflation and a huge asset bubble and again in 18 and so It's an environment that I think is really tough. I think what we're watching for is what cracks are under the surface that the Fed is going to have to support given what's happening Um, and it's almost like whack-a-mole. I think we've only seen a few few of these shoes uh, drop but I think next week they have to go 25. For credibility reasons, and they have to go 25 because of the data. And the sad news is, they're not going to have a lot more data before the next meeting. So if they do uh, pivot to the bond markets narrative, it's going to be because uh, because the conditions have gotten pretty bad. So it has to get worse before it gets better. And so it's a okay. really tough environment to invest. This is why, like Steve, I absolutely hate to say that we are. conservative. We're in more cash. We've been de-risking portfolios. And I think we're playing a waiting game on when we can get engaged again in a really
2: thoughtful way.
1: Rob Seachin, making up for lost time, giving us the uh, the notebook there, Rob. You know what? You, you're seeing a 25 basis point hike next week. You're not the only one. Let's show a wall. Some very prominent market voices seeing the same thing. We're talking uh, Jeffrey Gundlach, Carl Icahn, and Professor Siegel. All of them believe we're going to see a 25 basis point hike next week. So, Brent, I want to turn it over to you. How would the people in Silicon Valley think about that? And what do you think about the potential of this hike?
0: Yeah, I think, um, I think if they don't hike and maybe they wait until May and reevaluate and potentially hike in May if things calm a little bit, I think that message, especially in my, my part of the woods, would be well received and an acknowledgement that there have been two bank failures and one, you know, um, one bank that's been saved by a consortium of other banks. So there's been three banks uh, that have needed either serious help or have completely gone away. So that, in my mind, is meaningful enough. Uh, for the Fed to potentially pause um, this month and then reevaluate in May, uh, should things calm a little bit. Um, and I think the narrative on, on inflation, you know, shelter is such a gigantic component, and it's been the stickiest part. But if we think about how uh, regional banks are involved in the real estate market, they're incredibly involved in the real estate market due to a lot of lending on the, on the, um, on the consumer side. So I do think that Um, We may start to see some slowing there and prices come down a little bit, especially if um, if, you know, relatively decent rate financing is no longer available in some of these markets because the regional banks aren't lending.
1: Certainly something to consider. Steve, But wouldn't a pause here kind of spook the market? I mean, if the Fed decides not to hike, wouldn't that be a little scary that the Fed is nervous as well? You
3: know, I don't know what the market would do, because bulls have been focusing on one single data point and glomming onto that and then buying the market, trading the market. So maybe they see it positive, maybe they see negative. I think what you're talking about is a one or two day event. Uh, I do think the Fed will go 25 bips, 60-40, not a ton of conviction on it, but it matters for a day or two, otherwise it just doesn't matter. So. Look, the economy is going lower, whether the Fed hikes 25 or they don't. So I, I don't know. I, I just can't opine as much as I'd like to on what the market will do that day of the day after.
1: I mean, Joe, you also believe it's going to be a 25 basis point hike. Would you be nervous if there wasn't about what that would signal to Wall Street investors?
2: I mean, at this point, getting nervous, even uh, <laughs> what the market's done, what we've lived through. No, I don't get nervous easily. But I will tell you that I think whether they go 25 on Wednesday, or not, they're done. So after Wednesday, in my view, they're done. They yeah. still, no, they, go ahead and they, still they still have the balance sheet tightening that's in effect. That's something that at some point in 2023, I think they're gonna have to understand if that exercise continues or not. I'm not talking about rate cuts. I don't think that's the scenario that we're in. This feels eerily reminiscent to the 1994 Orange County bankruptcy. The pace at which then chairman Greenspan raised rates 300 basis points in, in 13 months and in November of 94, raised 75 basis points. And then, oh, here we go. Orange County bankruptcy. It feels so similar to the rapid pace in which we've raised rates in 2022 into 2023. So I think they're done. And then I think the bigger issue that we're all going to be talking about, what do they do with the balance sheet?
1: I mean, I think that's a big question. I want to pivot over, though, to what's actually working this week. Mega Cap Tech, that seems to be working. We're seeing the Nasdaq up on pace to uh, finish the week about four and a half percent higher. We're seeing some Mega Cap Tech names. I'm looking right here at my notes. Uh, Microsoft and also Alphabet um, having their best week since November of 2022. Rob Stichin, we don't to leave you out of this conversation. What does that tell you about what investors think about this market? I mean,
4: tech is getting a safety trade, Um, you know, interest rates are falling as a result of what's happening in the banking system. And, um, you know, tech is the new defensive, right? But we have to be cognizant of valuation. And that's why I, again, agree with Steve, because it may work for a bit, may work when we're in this crisis mode. But let's remember that tech trades at a 24 times forward P.E., above the pre-pandemic peak. Equal weight tech is 19 and a half times, again, above the pre pandemic peak. NASDAQ 100, same thing. Software is the only area that looks cheap, but it's offset by ex- semis, which look really, really expensive. And when you take the combination of positioning being light tech going into the year and then everybody playing catch up, I think what it's led to is valuations that are exceedingly high. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't own them. Um, You know, we own some of the tech. We own Apple, we own Microsoft, we own Google, we own Meta. But I think those all have catalysts in place and huge, huge cash flow uh, characteristics to them that kind of build a moat around them and make people chase them in what looks like it's going to be a low growth, unstable environment going forward. So you got to be there. You can't ignore it. But I'd be mindful of valuation and I mean really mindful of valuation.
1: Yeah, I think everybody's very mindful about valuation. I want to share something with you guys from Fundstrats Mark Newton. He put out a note today saying tech saves the day again. He believes the lows for this March decline were likely made on Monday. He believes that the S&P gets back up to 40.25 in the next couple weeks. And he says technology might very well continue up without any meaningful consolidation, at least in the near term. Weiss, you're making a face. You're looking now, at me. I don't know what these guys at Fundstrap drink. <laughs> what do they do? What planet are they living on? You know, we've heard the bullish
3: call for a couple of years now. 20 25 well, is not that far away. OK, but it's not that far. But, look, I don't think the bottom's been put in, right? That's the primary call. The bottom's put in. No, it hasn't been put in. OK, and as far as tech goes, I mean, it's a momentum trade. It's purely a momentum trade. You can't tell me the, the fundamentals of Microsoft are better today than they were a month ago. They're actually not. Okay, so you're still seeing the economy slowing. You're seeing cloud slowing. You're right. seeing data centers slow. So it's just people looking to hide. When you hide in a place, right, you're the first to come out when it starts going down. So I wouldn't put new money in there. Having said that, I did buy some more Google this week, right, and it's a trade. And um, I'll keep some of it for the long term because if you look two years from now, three years from now, stocks will be higher than where they are now. It's just so, a question of your point, But,
1: but right? Weiss, I want to push back on The S&P's at 39.20. He says it gets up to 40.25 in the next couple of weeks. 100 points in a few weeks. And you're saying he's he drinking kool He said some the Kool-Aid?
3: bottom's in. The bottom's in. Read that. You said I, the, I did. Right? I, I read okay. it. But I mean, so he, the bottom's not in, is my point. I think you're drinking Kool-Aid. You know, well, they drank Kool-Aid at Jim Jones' uh, retreat as well, and <laughs> that didn't work out so well. It's a so metaphor. It's, it's not Joe, optimistic t- t-
2: Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid. Okay, so, so first of all, on, on the mega caps, they are the best banks in the world right now. Yep. And that's really a part of the fundamental story where you're seeing a lot of return to capital back into them. The mega cap put, we learned that's what's in place this week. It's not the Fed put. It's the mega cap put. Now, let me share the ugly part of it. The ugly part of it, Is i don't own any of them the ugly part of it is the strategy the quality momentum strategy that's publicly traded doesn't own any of them they liquidated them in the fourth quarter of 2021 to your point on momentum momentum is a factor is down nine percent year to date okay momentum came completely out of all those mega caps and a lot of the non-discretionary funds followed along with that, and that's where the consensus playbook came into okay. play in 2023, where no one owned them. And right now... But do you regret that? Do you regret it? Well, I mean, when, when, you, when you look at performance, of course you regret course. it, but you don't regret following your strategy over the long term. You have a rules-based strategy, and you follow it. When you look at where you are right now, Frank, of course, obviously, you right. look at performance and You say, yeah, I wish I was there. But it allows you to understand what's going on in the market right now and have the humbleness, the respect that right now, there's really no strategy that's working because all of that consensus, even the consensus that there was gonna be a strong economy and a soft landing, that is getting obliterated. That's where the capitulation is ultimately happening. And you're seeing those funds flow back into mega cap. They're the best banks around. Does it continue? That's the question. And candidly, I don't think anyone knows the answer to that.
1: Yeah, certainly no one knows the answer. I also wanna bring your attention to a note from Dan Ives from Wedbush from, uh, from today. He says, Uh, He calls tech the new safety trade, actually. He says, well, it it sounds like the Twilight Zone comment to many investors. Tech stocks have become the new safety trade with big tech names, a major beneficiary of this dynamic. Brenda, what do you think? Safety trade?
0: You know, they certainly weren't a safety trade last year (laughs) when there was a lot of concern about growth, too. I think this time around, it's safety because of the lack of exposure to banks and other financials. Because to Joe's point, they are so cash rich. Um, But I also think the dynamic of interest rates coming down, as they have over the last few weeks, is certainly helping the group. Because I feel like rising interest rates was a big black cloud over the valuation uh, argument with this group. And so that's been alleviated temporarily but I still think we're in an environment where interest rates are likely to stay relatively high, and that's gonna put a lid on the valuation, especially even if these companies are incredibly healthy, they just aren't gonna grow like they did over the last decade. Um, But I do think we've seen some, like the metas and the alphabets of the world, where valuation was really overdone on the downside. I think there is fundamental reason for them to have recovered a little bit here, but as far as the full group continuing to move higher in a meaningful way, I I think it's hard to make that case.
1: Rob, I'm going to give you a last word on this before we go to break. Any quick thoughts on tech as the safety trade?
4: Well, let's not forget the traders are also betting that the Fed will pivot quickly and start adding the liquidity. Friday was the largest day of inflows for ARK, the, the ARK ETF, since right after the funds peak in, in 2021. And so I just think, you know, a lot of this is about near-term positioning as, you know, the funds rates are moving around so aggressively, the 10-year, the two-year, and traders are taking advantage of what we this, this flight to quality trade by buying some more uh, speculative assets that are tied to interest rates. So a little bit of this is not fundamentally well-supported, right? The large caps, yes. Some of this other stuff, no.
1: All right. There we go. Up next, our chart of the day, this transport stock seeing some big gains after earnings, how the committee is playing the sector. Halftime. Back in two minutes. Stay with us.
2: Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises.
1: All right. Let's get to our chart of the day. FedEx is leading the S and P five hundred uh, on this day. Shares gaining on a surprise earnings beat. They also raised their full year EPS guidance. So I don't know. Nobody here owns FedEx, but Brenda, you own their rival UPS. What do you think about this big beat for FedEx?
0: Well, I think it's good that they, too, are focusing on profitability, much like UPS has been focusing on profitability, uh, but when we look at the two, you know, we like that UPS has more density in the ground, U.S. ground business. Uh, we like that they are, UPS, in our view, is more tied to the e-commerce business in the U.S., which we think is likely to continue to be relatively strong. They do have exposure to Amazon's, about 11 percent of the business, and that had been viewed as a risk before, but we don't really think that's a risk in this environment. We don't think that Amazon is really in a position to invest even more in infrastructure at this point. So we think that rel- that business is relatively safe and prefer UPS, even though it hasn't performed as well as FedEx has this year.
1: So for UPS, is this a near-term outlook? Because of course, UPS is a big labor agreement with the Teamsters. They have to yes. settle at the end of July. Mm-hmm. If they can get it done by then, it may drag longer. Um, we're not really sure how this deal is going to work out for UPS. So concerned about that?
0: It's unconcerned, but I think structurally, we like UPS's business more than we like FedEx's business. All right,
2: Joe, you hold UPS as well? Yeah, similar, similar type scenario, and, and I would agree. I think it's more of a, of a short-term understanding of the business. I think when you look at the long-term optics uh, for both UPS and FedEx, how long can you maintain uh, the strategy focusing on cost efficiency? To Steve's point, how many jobs can you actually shed before there are no other jobs to shed Uh, They also in the case of FedEx, it's clear that they retained pricing power, which was relatively interesting in particular on the ground. They were up nearly 7 percent. How long if we do see the type of slowing that I think collectively all of us believe we're going to see in the economy, how long can they maintain that pricing power? So it's a short term vision. And you really to to transition that into a longer term focus, you have to have the belief that there's going to be some form of an economic growth restart. And I don't see the conditions to suggest that with any degree of confidence.
1: You know, I think that pricing power issues is a question. They actually raised their rates earlier this year. This they quarter did. was the holiday quarter, but they raised their rates earlier this year. And they saw double-digit increases for ground and freight. So, Steve, you own GXO, similar to their freight business more than the rest of the business. What's your take on what we're seeing from FedEx? Obviously, a lot of this was on, on, like, dramatically lower expectations. I don't think people had high expectations for this report.
3: Right, and they still missed the revenue expectations. That's true. So, uh, look, I I think the best thing that that happened to UBS was uh, FedEx kicking Amazon out, right? Because now you don't have them playing against one another in terms of pricing, and Amazon's a big play. GXO is just a completely different business. You know, it's really, you have to look at it as a cost-plus or a a take-or-pay business with inflation escalators in there. So GXO is 6% of the market share of the 3PL business globally, right? And they're the largest independent. So you're seeing more outsourcing. You're seeing more companies that find it tough to hire right? And when FedEx is getting rid of people. So I think GXO is going to be fine. It's a very misunderstood stock. But look, it's going to trade with the market just long term. I think it's the better play than either.
1: Yeah, GXO also has two very big customers, Apple and Verizon. So they really have a stable uh, you know, flow of volume coming from those two big customers for sure. Rob,
3: you'd be hard pressed to think of a blue chip name that's not a ours. The new fab that Intel's building, guess what? GX is building a warehouse right next to it. So their growth is just, you know, it's monumental. I mean, e-commerce is still growing, you know, high teen double digits, right? So um, they're a direct beneficiary.
1: Rob Sticham, what are your thoughts? I mean, FedEx, again, big beat, but on dramatically lowered expectations.
4: Yeah, I think it shows how a change in the narrative can help a stock no different than what happened with Meta, which was broadly viewed as a value trap, but still they started running their business more efficiently. And and it's funny because UPS, with uh, we own UPS, with Carol Tomei has been doing this for a long time. This has been their playbook, but it's the change at the margin that has caused the acceleration in a stock like FedEx. and. I think it's right to essentially do what the rails did 15 years ago with a great network and having some capital discipline. That's going to lead to longer term good results. But what investors want to hear right now is that you're being responsible in a market that looks like it's going to get tough from a pricing perspective.
1: Yeah, what also investors want to hear full details on that cost cutting plan. CEO Roz Subramanian will be here in New York City on April 5th with a full detail for a breakdown for investors, something that's definitely something investors want to watch. All right, still ahead, big changes coming to the S&P 500 at the close. Some of the best known stocks getting reclassified. We're following the money. That's coming up next on Halftime.
3: Grade my trade. Send us your latest stock move and the investment committee will debate it and grade it. Email us at askhalftime at cnbc.com or tweet us, hashtag grade my trade.
6: B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. That is LinkedIn.com slash halftime report for a 60 day free trial. Let LinkedIn sales navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to LinkedIn.com slash halftime report and get started.
5: Welcome back to Halftime. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's our CNBC News update this hour. The International Criminal Court has issued a warrant for Vladimir Putin's arrest. The Russian president is accused of what the court calls a war crime, the illegal transfer of children from Ukraine to Russia. The Kremlin says Russia is simply taking in children who had been forced to flee the fighting. Ukraine calls the move historic, but in Moscow, a foreign ministry spokesperson says the warrant is meaningless because Russia does not recognize the court's jurisdiction. President Biden is urging Congress to give regulators more power to hold executives accountable when mismanagement or excessive risk-taking leads to a bank's failure. Right now, the FDIC can only claw back compensation from executives at the nation's largest banks, and other penalties require evidence of recklessness or willing disregard for their bank's health. And the former Minneapolis police officer who's in federal prison for George Floyd's death has pled guilty to two counts of tax evasion. Derek Chauvin and his ex-wife were accused of underreporting their income and failing to file tax returns. Frank, I'll send it back to you.
1: Condessa Brewer, thank you very much. All right, turning our attention back to the markets, big changes in the S&P 500, the annual reclassification of the index It's taking place today at the close. Several stocks are moving to new sector categories, and that could have a big impact on your portfolio. Our Bob Pisani joins us now with the details. Bob, great to have your insight on this, but I thought you were going to be here, Bob. You left me standing or hanging.
7: Uh, well, you know, we've got a lot of different things we're doing in different parts of the world, Frank. This story is very interesting because the index gurus are at it again. Some of the most well-known stocks are getting reclassified today, and that means a lot of money is going to be moving around at the close. So in a display of common sense by S&P, Target and Dollar General and Dollar Tree are going to move out of consumer discretionary and join Walmart, finally, as consumer consumer staples at the close. Strangely, you know, Frank, Visa, MasterCard, and PayPal seem like financials, right? But they're actually listed as technology stocks. That too is going to be changing at the close today. They will move finally into the financial sectors, arguably where they belong. For those who just own the S&P 500, this is not going to affect you. But for those of you who trade sectors like financials or bank stocks, it's going to change the weightings. So financials, for example, will be a bit bigger at the close. Technology will be a bit smaller. It's all part of the annual reclassification of the S&P 500 and dozens of other indices as part of an agreement. Agreement brokered by the two biggest index providers in the world—that's MSCI and Standard and Poor's (S&P)—they 25 years ago, almost 24 years ago, set up an industry standard. It's called the Global Industry Classification Standard GIX, that splits all the world into 11 sectors. 24 industry groups, 69 industries, and 158 sub-industries. That's why we use words like, for example, uh, energy stocks or consumer discretionary. All this was an academic exercise 25 years ago. Before that, That was before the triumph of the ETF business and the triumph of indexing. Now, there's now north of $6 trillion indexed to just the S&P 500 alone. So any movement of stocks involves moving money from one sector to another. These are not fund managers, the people who do this. They're index providers. But Frank, don't let that fool you. In a world where people buy funds that are tied to indexes, the people who determine what go into those indexes Have become very powerful indeed. Frank, back to you. All right, Bob. Thank you very much. So, Joe,
1: I'm going to come to you first. We were just actually chatting before the show about the move of Mastercard, Visa, and PayPal into financials. Um, You also hold those in the Joe T uh, ETF. What's that going to do for you?
2: Visa and Mastercard. Visa and Mastercard. Excuse me, not PayPal. So, 11 companies are going out of technology, and what's significant here is a little bit of a transformation for the financial sector. By bringing two companies with $300 billion-plus market caps in Visa and MasterCard, you're really diversifying the top five or even the top ten holdings in the financials away from traditional banks. And I think it's one of the reasons why I personally bought MasterCard the other day. I had already personally owned Visa. But I believe that now you could look at the financial sector, to Bob's point, if you are playing sector ownership, and say, okay. I don't want to necessarily be in the big banks or the regional banks. I get a little bit more diversification within the sector. Visa and MasterCard will be the third and fourth largest weightings within the sector now, pumping down a lot of those banks.
1: Yeah, big change. Rob Seachin, you also own MasterCard or Visa. Big deal? Little deal? I
4: thank God deal, because I've had to explain to clients why we're overweight tech. And I come on the show and talk about how we don't like tech, and it's because of our ownership of visa and mastercard frankly i think it's ridiculous that the payments are ca- payment providers are, are are categorized within technology so to me that's uh that's a real positive some of the other changes perhaps will lend a little bit more support um to those areas they're moving to consumer staples and i think that's uh that's going to be uh you know in a risk-off market that's going to provide some support so i'm happy about this change all right
1: I'd leave the conversation there. Straight ahead, two bullish calls on one big semi-stock, pushing it higher today and up 13% for the week. The committee debates the chips trade. That's coming up next. But first, as we had to break, a message from Naturalicious founder and CEO, Gwen Jameer, as CNBC celebrates women's heritage.
0: One thing that people can learn from my journey is that it is perfectly okay to pivot. It doesn't matter where you are in your life. Oftentimes as women who are high achieving, we oftentimes feel like we are pigeonholed into whatever it is that we're known for. And I'm here to let you know that it doesn't matter if you're divorcing, if you're having a baby, if you simply are no longer passionate about what it is that you're doing or were previously doing, you can totally change gears, totally shift. You will probably even be more successful than you were before because now You're living in your purpose, and you're aligned with
5: what you're supposed to be doing.
2: All right, welcome
1: back to Halftime. NVIDIA on pace for its best week since late January. The stock getting an upgrade from Morgan Stanley today, and it's our call of the day. Brenda, you own it.
0: We do own it, and NVIDIA is an incredible growth story. We've seen the market really start to reward that Uh, this year. It's had an incredible move higher. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think this is a market where valuation still matters, and and uh, to see price targets suddenly being having to look out to twenty twenty seven to kind of justify our higher price target, it's a little concerning. Uh, it doesn't take away from the fact though that we think NVIDIA is the best long term growth story within the space, and really with you could argue, within the market, you know, to a certain extent. So there's reason to still be positive on the stock. But I do think that this year we're probably in for another period of a lot of volatility. Uh, So I think putting new money to work here in the name, it's a little tough, just given the valuation backdrop.
1: So I'm looking at the valuation right now, 65 times forward earnings. Steve Weiss, justified? No. High quality
3: company, good management, but it's still capital intensive. It's got a free cash flow yield of, uh, I think, about 2%. Uh, it On an EBITDA basis, it's also a ridiculous multiple. The price increases that we're seeing today, they're ridiculous, okay? They're only raising their price targets because the stocks, Reached their price target before. So they've got to make a decision do I make up some reason to keep this on the list? And in order to do so, the buy list, I've got to raise my price target. So don't be fooled by that. That's just the games that analysts play, right? Because they want to get the calls when somebody's looking at NVIDIA. If you have a neutral on, you're not getting a call, you're not going to make the II poll, you're not going to get paid more money as an analyst.
1: All right, Rob, you got some broad based chip ownership here Applied Materials, Cadence Design, and KLA. What do you think about this upgrade for NVIDIA?
4: And Lamb, um, listen, we wouldn't own NVIDIA, and it's because it's capital intensive. It's exactly as Steve said. All this exposure is capital light. If you want to own anything within semis, you want to own the equipment manufacturers. What does capital light mean? It means they don't have to spend a lot of money to make a lot of money. And when you look out five years at all these types of names, they're moving to service-based models, which over time, that means they should be less cyclical. And so. That's how we're thinking about it. Listen, the the, the sector has done great, right? But you want to be cautious on valuations because prices are are, are really high.
2: If you want to be cautious on valuations, you look towards three stocks that have reasonable valuations, analog devices, on-semi, and microchip. Those are three names that are respectful of valuation, strong fundamentals, strong momentum, and give you exposure to clearly what's a bottom in the semis.
1: So I want to go back to the note really quick, and Weiss, tell me if you think this is kind of just gamesmanship as well. I mean, in the note, they believe that uh, the push for AI is going to increase capex spending, and that's where I guess maybe it reaches this price target because companies like an AWS, um, you know, Google, cloud services, they're going to all spend more money just to ramp up their AI capabilities. Does that seem like a reasonable thesis to you? Because you seem really doubtful about this note.
3: Yeah, yeah, I think comes down, everything's got a price and you need some discipline, and Price or valuation is not part of your discipline. Number one, it's a mistake. But number two, go buy it. But a 55 times EBITDA for a capital-intensive business is just asinine. You know, maybe you'll make money, but I don't think you will. And you're losing the pricing umbrella, the valuation umbrella of the market. So, look, they're not going to be the only ones to make AI chips. They've kept their competitive advantage in technology of chips for a while. But historically, if you go back, Intel... They were the technology okay. leader. Look where it is. Right. So I think that may be close to their direction as well.
1: NVIDIA point. up 77% year day. Brenda, I know you think a lot of people already missed the boat. All right, up next, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word, Halftime. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to halftime. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli is here with his midday word. So, Mike, what do you think? What are you seeing today? The pullback, I think, is on the minds of everybody.
8: It is. uh, And then we got this little mini bounce uh, in there it's another very uneven tape, right? So it's most stocks down. In fact, the vast majority of volumes to the downside, you have a handful of stocks to the upside the equal weighted s and is down a percent and a half. So in other words, it's still a handful of big ones that are supporting the market, insulating us from a little more damage. It's tough to get any real conviction, I think, here, because you can't disprove the idea that another bank is going to start wobbling next week. I'm not predicting that. Nobody should be. But you can't basically convince somebody today that it's not going to happen we need about a week when we see solidity there um that said i think the action this week is not giving you further reason for alarm the low for the week at this point is the first thing monday morning and we've kind of gotten a little bit of traction uh, with the help of those big stocks right here so um, into wednesday's fed decision uh, I feel like we're going to basically, we can talk ourselves into any scenario in terms of what they're going to do. Um, and it's not even clear to me that the specific move matters terribly much, as much as the conditions and the expectations the moment before they do it. Right, I'm going to open it up to the committee,
1: even wise, but really quick, what do you make of the Russell being hit yeah. the hardest today, down 2%? It's
8: been the story of the week, right? So um, it's the antithesis of what people want right now, which is the Microsofts, the NVIDIAs that have, you know, massive balance sheets and and are impervious to macro flows. What you have at the Russell is not only a lot of financial stocks, but a lot of bank dependent borrowers in the other companies. So it's just a place where it seems like if you have a market that's grabbing for quality, that's lower quality. It's getting discarded. Yeah.
2: Anybody else? Any other thoughts? So, I, Mike, I've called this week the consensus capitulation, right? Just, just basically yeah. everything we thought was going to work hasn't worked. And it's moved back into the areas of the market that at the end of the year were liquidated like mega caps. On the other side of the Federal Reserve meeting, what's your degree of confidence or your expectation that that type of behavior can continue in particular for the mega caps? Yeah,
8: I I don't have particularly high conviction that this is up and away for that sector. Um, You know, the the Nasdaq 100 has rebuilt its premium to the rest of the market, basically. And it's not like it's sort of cheap on a relative basis anymore. Um so I don't know, I agree with you, the market's attacking these little nodes of conviction and trying to find exactly where you can kind of
1: force the issue there. Mike Santoli with his midday word. Grade my trades coming up next. Send an email to halftime at cnbc.com or tweet us. We will be right back. Welcome back to halftime. It's now time for grade my trade. First up, we got a question for Joe. Randall bought Valero Energy at fifty one seventy six on August eighth of twenty twenty. He wants to add to his position, but he missed multiple pullbacks last year to buy it at hundred bucks. Do you think he has another chance to buy shares at one hundred bucks?
2: Hmm. Well, first of all, oil is under significant pressure right now. For Valero to get to hundred dollars from here, oil would have to move into the fifties. Uh, the likelihood of that, not necessarily sure. I'm going to give him an A here as far as a grade. And my advice would be, if you really want to buy some more, don't rely so much on price, but rely on the calendar. Maybe take whatever the positioning size you want to do. And at the end of each quarter, do a, a um, do a purchase at the end of each quarter. Base it on time, not price.
1: Next question for Brenda. Steve currently has 60 shares of Chubb. He wants to know if she, if he should add more. Should I add more?
3: Oh, different Steve, sorry.
0: (laughs) Well, I think Chubb (laughs) is a really high-quality company within the insurance space, very diversified business, industry-leading margins. The stock has pulled back a little bit this year, to the extent that it's interesting, I think you could add a little bit more, although I will say that there are other defensive names, uh, not in insurance business, in other areas like healthcare, even with the J&J, some other things that have pulled back that I think are worthy of consideration, too.
1: All right, next question for Steve Weiss. No Volvo Act on this one, Steve, just the answer. Dave bought Moderna at 175. Should he hold or sell? Please grade his trade. So I'm gonna grade this on a curve.
3: So long-term, fantastic trade. They're gonna reveal some more data on their personalized cancer vaccine uh, coming up at, at, a, at a medical uh, conference. Uh, I love it long-term. Nothing's changed my view long-term. Short-term, it's volatile. So, and the earnings may not justify the valuation, but that's not what's supposed to be the biotech stocks, particularly with their fortress balance sheet. So I think it's an A, long-term, short-term, Well, that's anybody's guess. All
1: right, we have to leave it there. Final Trades coming up next on Halftime. You don't want to miss them. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Halftime for Final Trades. Rob, you're up first. Applied materials. You know, we're
4: going to stick with what we've been winning with, and uh, AMAT's a great one. Trades at a 20% discount to the semi-peer Brenda.
0: CBS Health, it's pulled back significantly this year. Defensive business, very inexpensive stock. I think it's worthy of consideration.
2: Joe T. Significant disinflationary environment. Gold is the right trade. Stay long.
3: Steve. Bank prefers J.P. Morgan, City B of A. I think you'll make money intermediate and longer term.
1: All right, that's it for Halftime. The exchange with Kelly Evans. It starts right now. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to
2: CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast podcast can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern only on CNBC